Hey everybody, welcome back to another Photog Adventures podcast. I'm Aaron King. I'm Brendan Porter. With families and day jobs, we know it's hard to find time to get out there with your camera. So Brendan and I joined together and made the commitment to go out consistently and build up our landscape and astrophotography portfolios. We live in Utah and are lucky to have so many beautiful landscapes all around us. Not only do we have five national parks right here in Utah, but we are only a day or less drive away from 30 other national parks. So we created PhotogAdventures.com, this podcast, and our YouTube channel to chronicle our adventures. Come along with us to amazing places and learn from our mistakes and our successes. We hope that you will get out there too and have a photog adventure of your own. It's episode 113 and hey patrons, I told you that there would not be another episode before January 7th, but I take that back. I was able to find someone awesome enough who was willing to come on during the Christmas season, right before Christmas, where today it's the 21st and I'm hanging out with Matt Payne. Hey Matt. Hey, how's it going? We're excited to have have you here. I'm excited to have you come on. We've been seeing your podcast and I have to admit, man, there's a lot of jealousy in the beginning of the podcast days. And I'm like, okay, we're a new photography podcast. There's no one else. Oh, wait, crap. There's F stop collaborate and listen. There's another (laughs) podcast out there. That's new. Okay. He's the one we must kill. And in order to get popular, we had to beat him out. No, there was always a looking to see how things were going with your podcast versus ours and seeing like, okay, brand new photography podcast growing up together. I always, seem to be watching you and seeing where you're going and I was just you know there were moments of envy when you had Aaron Bobnick on and then Nick Page had you on and there was also moments of just pure joy as I'm listening to all the guys that you've interviewed and the photographers that you had so awesome awesome photography podcast I haven't listened to any of them recently, so I won't pretend like I've listened to all your episodes. I don't want to give that impression, but guys, I'm excited to have Matt Payne on today. So before I go into the introduction of who Matt Payne is, guys, patron members, I had someone ask me, how do I get into your guys' podcast? And I'm just going to give you guys a quick reminder here in case you haven't found any way to do it. If you go into your patron page and you go to the Photog Adventures, once you're logged in on your patron account and go to Photog Adventures, you'll see an audio RSS link in the top right. And you just go ahead and copy that link, go to any podcatcher that you like to use, and there is a manually enter a podcast by URL button somewhere. For iTunes, it says specifically enter podcast manually by URL, something like that. And you just copy and paste that link in there, and then you'll be subscribed to this specific feed. And so every time we release one of these audio podcasts out there on the Patreon blog, You'll be able to see these podcasts. They'll pull up just like the other photography podcasts or a Photog Adventures podcast, and you'll see a little patron-only logo on there, and you know you got the right one. So cool. With that out of the way, let me introduce Matt Payne. If you don't already know Matt Payne and F-Stop, collaborate and listen. He's a guy who grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, so just on the other side of the Rocky Mountains from us, his view of the Rocky Mountains is very weird because you look west to see them. It's just bizarre. can't even <laughs> imagine it. And he's loved mountains his whole life, and mountaineering is what we're going to talk about today. And recently, you just received some major award of <laughs> actually having summited 100, I guess, should I say peaks, summits? How many mountains? It's the 100 peaks or 100 summits that you recently have conquered in Colorado. Yeah, so I, uh, I recently completed my lifetime goal of, of climbing the highest 100 mountains in Colorado. So, so it's not just any mountains hit the summit. It counts only at the top 100, the highest 100. Right. And, uh, you know, there's a whole oh. bunch of nerdy information you can get about, like, what counts as a mountain? And 
Why is that one uh, its own mountain and this one's not? It's a there's a term you can look look up called prominence, and we follow the 300 okay. foot prominence rule. But yeah, 100 of the high the hundred highest mountains in Colorado, 53 of which are above 14,000 feet. Okay, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, the last 100th peak or summit, how high <laughs> is that one? It's uh, was it like 13.8? I mean, it's uh, it's also it's still really high. Yeah, it's base. They're all basically almost 14ers. Are there a lot of situations where you know a peak is a famous peak? Uh, what's the one off of Colorado Springs that's huge? Uh, that's Pikes Peak. Pikes Peak. Okay, my buddy lived in Colorado Springs a long time ago, and Pikes Peak, he talked about going up there, and I said, oh, Mount Timpanogos is really tall. And I realized Mount Timpanogos over here is much shorter than Pikes Peak. <laughs> the interesting thing about Pikes Peak is the city, Colorado Springs, is up higher next to it, so it doesn't have the same like overbearing hanging over the city like Timpanogos' peak does here in Utah Valley mm -hmm. because we start so much lower, but it is crazy high in elevation. And that one, um, if you're up at the peak and then you go to another prominence nearby, did are one of those prominences counting as one of the hundred? Oh, so for Pikes Peak, uh, no. So the closest uh, mountain that's in the highest hundred to Pikes Peak is probably a good 70 or 80 miles to the south in the Sangre de Cristo range or um, pretty much to the north, which would be like Long's Peak um, or Meeker. Um, Meeker is a good example. So Long's Peak, which is in Rocky Mountain National Park west of Denver, um, it has a, um, a mountain next to it called Meeker, and it is in the highest hundred because it has 300 feet of prominence in between the two summits, which means there's basically a saddle in between the two yeah. that goes down 300 feet. And so then I don't know who made up the 300 foot rule, but that's kind of what people use to determine whether or not something is its oh. own kind of unique summit in terms of counting it as a ranked summit, um, quote unquote. So that's, that's kind of the way we look at it in mountaineering world. It's, I don't know, it's kind of silly, but you got to have some rule to follow or else people argue. <laughs> so yeah, it serves yeah, that purpose. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so basically if a peak has a 300 meet a 300 foot difference between the saddle going down and then back up to another prominence that could count as another one of the top 100. Good. And there's, um, several examples of that in the state where there's, um, clusters of mountains that are pretty close together. And often you would do more than one of them in the same day. And then, you know, you have multiple peaks in that same day. Okay, sweet. Well, I want to get right into the mountaineering aspect of photography, but let's go away from that. And then I'll return us back to this topic. Perfect. I just want to quickly ask you, I joked about S-Stop Collaborate and Listen being <laughs> someone that we could gauge ourselves against as, okay, is he getting a crowd? Oh, he's a patron now. Okay. He's a Patreon page too. Okay. Is it working? Awesome. And I, I don't know the exact numbers, of course, but I feel like S-Stop Collaborate and Listen and Photog Adventures podcast has all been kind of going up around similar times of everything. So I've enjoyed watching your success. How would you define how the channel's going and tell people who have never listened to S-Stop Collaborate and Listen what they're missing out on and why they should listen to your podcast? Yeah, so the podcast is um, almost all exclusively focused on landscape photography. So um, kind of the premise of the show was... Um, I don't know if you've had this experience where you're with other photographers, maybe one or two other people, maybe three, and you're maybe driving to a location together or maybe you're camped at a campsite together 
and you start just talking about photography and your adventures <laughs> and what you learn and like what is your post processing and and then you start getting into all these other tertiary topics like real uh, uh, politics or environmental topics or things like that and so kind of the idea of the podcast is to just have, sit down with other landscape photographers and have kind of casual conversations with them but um, kind of more in depth and in, I, I don't know if I want to use the word intellectual but you know we cover a, a broad go for it I <laughs> dare you to use it we cover a broad <laughs> range of topics you know we typically don't just talk about like gear or like um, you know post-processing things like that we, we cover a lot of topics and um, we try to you know cover a lot of things that are interesting to landscape photographers in fact you know just today I had a guy on his name's Arka, Arka Chatterjee, and he's a landscape photographer who, who also happens to be an intellectual property lawyer. And so we talked all about hmm. copyright laws and how that applies to landscape photography and kind of what people should think about. So depending on the guest and um, kind of what they're known for or what they're into, we kind of talk about all kinds of different tertiary related topics to photography. Well, I mean, I've got to say, as a guy who loves the English language and working with the English language, Working in the term tertiary twice in a few sentences <laughs> is amazing. I got to say, I love that. I love you for it. And then is it fair of me to judge that sometimes your topics on S-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen might have someone like Aaron Bobnick on, but you're not just going to talk about like what we're going to interview her for, but how do you do this for photography? What do you do this? What do you do this? And what do you like? And tell me your stories. Sometimes you also get into... I wouldn't say it's exactly politics, but sometimes the politic topics within photography and you guys get into some of those conversations and then argue or debate maybe not with each other, but you talk about a debate that's happening and break it down. I think you guys even talked, Aaron Bomnick and you, about the specific types of photography, art versus real photography and what makes an image no longer an image versus art as well as doing things like perspective blending and stuff like that is it safe to say that your conversation topics broaden and go into these kind of political hard-hitting discussions than just specifically what do you do for photography tell us everything that we've already heard before and that's it yeah that's exactly right i mean um my my goal with the podcast is to go into a lot more depth into Maybe maybe controversial is maybe not the right word, but definitely um, topics where um, there may not be a consensus or there might be uh, different viewpoints from various aspects of in the community of landscape photographers. And so, yeah, I love I love having those conversations with people, even not on the po podcast, but just, you know, when I'm talking to other photographers in the field, I love just having those conversations about you know, workshops and like, what, why do people take workshops? And, um, like yeah. all, anything that you maybe have thought of, like those are the topics that I love to just go into super depth with people. And I try to find guests that also share that passion for that topic or might have a unique viewpoint about that topic. And then I kind of just, uh, let them loose. And then, um, <laughs> Uh, hopefully the train doesn't get derailed too many times and we, and we have a good time of it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the goal isn't to like necessarily, you know, change people's minds per se, but maybe just give people, um, something that, that they can maybe, um, like, Oh, I never thought about it that way. And, um, you know, it's, it's something that's, I think missing in a lot of our discourse right now, especially in the United States is, you know, with how politically divided we are, I think. Anytime we can sit down and have a meaningful 
uh, discourse um, where we may not agree, but actually listen to the other side of the um, equation. I think I think that we can all benefit from listening in on on those types of dialogues. So that's that's definitely one of the goals of the podcast. Ah, oh, geez, I think you're a complete moron for even saying that we can converse with other people without being angry. You're one of the great problems with this country today, thinking that you could talk to people without fighting. Oh my gosh, it's such a ridiculous world right now. I My only hope is that people in the millennial category and below are so annoyed by it and don't care that by the time they get into power, they won't have this great, hey, we're the great relief and messiah of the world and you guys over there on the opposite side are the great Satan. I'm hoping that we can have a little bit better discourse, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. There's still a 24-hour news cycle and there's still people who pick sides. And if you're polarizing, you get a lot more attention right. than if you're not. So it's just stupid. But I, I love your podcast and how you go about tackling some of these subjects. And I got to tell you guys, heads up warning, if you haven't listened to F-Stop Collaborating Lish, uh, blah, blah, blah. Take two. If you haven't listened to F-Stop Collaborating Listen before and you want to jump in there, don't bring maybe your five-year-old child because when he lets his listeners, his podcast guests loose, he lets loose. And sometimes you're going to hear an F-bomb or two. You're going to enjoy you know, conversation as if you were right there with them. And it's a fun, real conversation. It feels like you're hanging out with these people instead of just at a formal interview situation. Yeah, and that's the goal. And um <laughs> Uh, speaking of for profanity, you know, actually, um, we've toned we've, we've toned that down quite a bit on the podcast. Um, oh, really? Recently, you've toned yeah, I'd it. say probably in the last forty episodes. You know, it, it, it comes out every once in a while, but it's definitely not nearly as, um, I guess, pro, use use of profanity has definitely decreased over time. <laughs> okay. I mean, I guess there's some things you do want to avoid, but it's just, he's real guys. It's real. It's fun. None of it is scripted. It's a, it's a blast. If you guys want to listen to something while you're driving out to a location. So check out F stop, collaborate and listen. You can find his information at Matt and pain is with an E look at the spelling P A Y N E look at the spelling in the title of the podcast. So Awesome. So in contrast to everything that you just said about going into conversation topics and talking discussions, I'm going to bring us into an interview where we're just going to talk about you, photography, and even some gear, and even some of your specific adventure stories. At least the adventure stories is what you like to do as well, and so at least that segment will be a lot of fun. Absolutely. In fact, in fact, my, my segue typically for a guest is to tell them, imagine you're at a campsite with other photographers and everyone's swapping stories. Well, what would you say when it's your turn? What's your story going to be? And that's sometimes a way to get them in the mood and frame of mind thinking. Because sometimes I say, tell us something funny. And they're like, oh, crap, I'm on the spot. But if I say, tell us something that you always tell everyone because you love sharing that story, it typically ends up being funny. Yeah, absolutely. And so I always use that meta, uh, metaphor whenever I bring them into it or I bring them into that scene. So it's funny that you called it that. That for your for your podcast so awesome i think f-stop collaborating listen and photog adventures have some very good similarities and i'm glad to finally have you on but back to mountaineering you are a mountaineer is that like a mouseketeer i mean what's a mountaineer defined by you if you were going to say i go hiking once or twice a year i'm not a mountaineer right if i just do that. you know it's funny um I would say, at least in Colorado, like 80% of the quote-unquote mountaineering or mountain climbing that you do is really just walking up really steep hills. <laughs> um, you know, like, um, 
in you know it's funny in the uk they you know they literally call it walking like oh yeah i walked a mountain you know like oh yeah and and in, in colorado we call it climbing mountains and so but uh you know there's a there is definitely a distinction between uh hiking mountains and 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 mountaineering or climbing a mountain um specifically i think once I don't know if you or your guests are familiar with the Yosemite Decimal System, which is a... Not me. I'm not it, familiar with it. It's a rating system that mountain climbers have developed over the years to basically rate the difficulty of a climb. Um, and you've probably heard, well, I don't know, you maybe have heard like uh, rock climbers, they'll say like, oh, that's like a 5.9 or that's a 5.10 or that's a 5.11. That's the Yosemite right. Decimal System. Oh, okay. And, and so in mountain climbing, you kind of start at the, you start at the Yosemite Decimal System, you start at one and then you go all the way up to five. So one is like basically walking. Two is like a little bit of like scrambling where you might occasionally have to like, you know, put your hand down on the ground to get your footing. Uh, class three is kind of when mountaineering starts to begin, I would say, is when you have a lot more kind of hand over hand moves and more scrambling and there's a little bit more risk involved um, in terms of falling. And then class four is like definitely, um, I would say for at least here in Colorado, like that's the sweet spot for a lot of us because um, you're doing a lot of stuff that um, you might want to consider using a rope, but using a rope is probably not very safe or feasible in that situation because there's nothing really oh. to anchor to. And there's a lot of um, scrambling on um, on rock. So, um, and, a, and, a, and a mistake probably will um, have grave consequences. Um, perhaps uh, death being one of those possible consequences. Um, so that's kind of more in the realm of mountaineering when you're you know you're you're doing a lot more kind of more dangerous um, uh, climbing and. Uh, and I would also say there's an aspect of mountaineering that's kind of more in the realm of alpinism, which, you know, you're you're studying the route, you know, you're getting to be become familiar with the terrain. Um, you're trying to figure out the weather. You're trying to figure out the safest and quickest way, or maybe the most um, adventurous way, depending on your your mood for the day, of how to get to the right. top of the mountain. So, um, I think there's lots of different ways to define mountaineering, but I think um, once you start to um, once you're trying to get to the top of a mountain and it has some risk involved, I think that's mountaineering. <laughs> okay. So is it safe to say that if you hike an entire trail, no matter how high up a mountain you go, and you never have to touch anything with your hands, it's just walk, walk, foot in front of each other the entire time, is that a one? Probably a class one, yeah. <laughs> okay. So once you have to, you have to put your feet and hands in certain areas, get nooks and crannies and work around some segments, and then you walk for a long stretch and then you do it again, that's leaning into a two or is definitely a two. Yeah. Two and two is probably more like just a bit steeper of a hike. Um, mm, like okay. you may occasionally like have to use your hands or something to like, you know, um, get get around an obstacle or something but it's definitely not there's not a lot of fall risk in a class two gotcha so one and twos are basically what i've been doing and i'm not really going to call it mountaineering yet until you get to three or four have you ever by chance done the canary creek falls trail here in utah down by zion you know it's sad i've been so obsessed with colorado that i haven't (laughs) done hardly anything anywhere else except for in oregon because i lived in portland for two years 
Um, oh, cool. So yeah, I haven't done a whole lot outside of Colorado. <laughs> well, that's not a negative, man. Because I mean, you focus on an area like that, you can really be a an expert on it versus someone like me who's touched everywhere a little bit once or twice. And sometimes I'll get questions about a specific location. And I'll say, ah, oh, you know what? I have no idea. These are the places that I've been. And I love those places that I've been back there twice, but I've never gone outside of that or did this or whatever your question was. And so being an expert in Colorado, I think is going to be better for you in the long run. That's awesome. And I don't have any hikes in Colorado that I can bring up to try and draw a comparison to get an idea. So we'll just bail on that. And let me ask you this specifically for photography. You are a camera-wielding, tripod-wielding photographer and you're mountaineering. Um, have you gone the route, and is it necessary to go the route of a smaller, lighter camera, ditch the mirror cameras? Have you done that? What do you use today? Yeah, so <laughs> um, along the journey, you know, I used to have a Nikon D800, and I would carry up the Trinity, so the 14 to 24, 24 70, 70 to 200 with a tripod. Um, I even one time climbed a class three 13 er um, way in the top hundred called Grizzly Peak with a also a 300 f4 and a teleconverter. So I had probably, oh God, I'm just gonna say I had about 30 pounds worth of camera gear on my on me and I was doing technical moves. Um, <sighs> I got only 30 pounds. Wow. I got and that was just the camera gear. <laughs> Um, good point. <laughs> um, I got really tired of carrying that much weight because, um, you know, a lot of the trips that I do here require um, relatively long tra tra tracks of backpacking and um, the, especially the really just amazing places here in the San Juans because I, I live in Durango, Colorado now, which is in the southwest part of Colorado. And okay. The, the most amazing mountains in Colorado are down here in the San Juans is the Grenadier Range and the Needle, the Needle Mountains and so the most amazing Colorado mountains I've never even seen. Oh, I got to get down there. Yeah, dude, it's um, it's kind of ridiculous to be. That's the only way I can describe <laughs> how amazing these mountains are down here. But uh, it's kind of oh, a secret. Wow. So um, well, fortunately, they're I'll not. Strike that from the podcast. No, I mean, they're they're just not e they're not easy to get to for most people. So I'm not super mm. worried about it. But uh, gotcha. Yeah. So you know, last let's see about about. I'm trying to remember now. It's been almost two years now. I, I switched to the Sony mirrorless system, um, and I went mostly with prime lenses for a while. So I had, uh, I have the Sony A7R2, and I picked up the uh, the Zeiss Loxia 21 f2.8, which is a great, super lightweight, all manual wide angle lens, which um, is probably the sharp one of the sharpest wide angle lenses I've ever used. Um, oh, really? Yeah. I'll take note of that. And it's really, really, really small. Like you could fit it in your pocket, no problem. Um, like, I don't know. It's, it's, yeah, I can't even just tell you how small. It's very small. <laughs> so we got to, we got to hear it again just because all of us are thinking, hmm, I wonder if I want to get that lens. It's a Zeiss Luxia F2.8. What? Yeah. So the Zeiss Luxia F2.8. Um, that's it. Okay. So uh, 21, a, 21 millimeter. Oh, 21 millimeter. Cool. Yeah. So it's a prime. And it is a small, not too heavy, actual light lens. Awesome. Yeah, and it's, um, it's really sharp. And I would say out of any of the Sony lenses, it has the best Sunstar. So if you like Sunstars, um, yes, I would say the, the, um, the only – there's probably only a couple lenses that have a better Sunstar in my opinion. I, I'm, a, I'm weirdly obsessed with Sunstars. Um, so 
Um, <laughs> Many of us are. I mean, sometimes we wait and specifically get one in almost every one of our sunset shots. So, yes, I feel you. Yeah, so I'd say like the Canon uh, 1635 2.8 probably is the only lens I've seen that has a better sun star. But the Loxia 21 is a lot sharper than that lens um, and a way smaller package. I got to play the devil's advocate here because as a guy who owns a mirrored camera, I'm not trying to fight from my side and say that you guys are all nuts, but it feels like, and with many things, someone gets an idea that this thing is incrementally better and it's defined by that for years and say that it's better to have this versus this. It's so much lighter than this, but it is an incremental change. You're a guy who's a mountaineer hiking. You're paying attention to the ounces. You're not just paying attention to the little bit of weight you have in your bag. You're really watching it. So how much of a difference did it make? Yeah. So it's, so I'm also a data nerd and a, I'm a, I love, spread, <laughs> I love spreadsheets. So I actually created a um, spreadsheet that has really yeah and it's on my you can actually play with it and use it it's on my website um if you just do the i want to it's um under i think it's like under the artist and then it says like sony why switch to sony or something like that or so it's one of your white links that says on there why switch to sony yeah and basically at the bottom i have a spreadsheet i created that has lookup tables (laughs) and it has the weight of pretty much every lens um that sony has available and has every lens that nikon has available and it has every lens that canon has almost every lens that canon has available and so you can actually play with the tool and it'll tell you exactly how the weights are different um and it'll actually even tell you how much those kits cost, and it gives you links to those uh, those items in, in B&H. Oh. But uh, basically, I use that to help determine what lenses I want to bring with me on a backpacking trip based on focal length. Um, so I don't know if you've looked at it, but basically I have it um, split out like wide-angle, mid-range, telephoto, and then I have it to where you can add like other, like if you want to bring other lenses as well or whatever. Um, so to answer your questions more specifically, when I was shooting Nikon versus yeah. now when I shoot Sony, I'd say uh, I was able to reduce the weight of my kit by about five pounds, which, I mean, that's um, that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're climbing right. you know, seven, eight miles and three, 4,000 feet of elevation, that makes a huge difference over the course of a day on your knees and your back. That's all together with the lenses and the camera change that you made. And you're hiking, you feel it, you already, I mean, you probably couldn't go any further than you could before, but it's just the pain on your back and your knees, you said you felt it? Yeah, I mean, I would say I'm able to go a lot further, actually. Um, Even further, awesome. Yeah, I did, um, I mean, we'll get to this in the third segment of the podcast, but I've, I've done some pretty crazy backpacking trips in the last two years um, that I can guarantee I wouldn't have been able to do if I was using my old, my old kit. Okay, that's an endorsement enough for me that you feel like you couldn't even have made the trip if you hadn't changed. So, okay. All right. I mean, it's easy for us to argue that it's just such an incremental weight difference that most of us won't notice it, but that can still be true and incorrect at the same time. It's true for the person who drives up to location and puts their bag out on their on the back of their car seat and then takes the equipment that they have that they need and put it on the tripod and walk 20 yards. That's never going to be a big difference for that person. But if you're hiking miles to some location, it's going to be all the difference. And so did you choose Sony for any particular reason on weight or did you choose it because you like the system and then chose your lenses based on weight? Yeah. So it's, um, uh, 
you're absolutely right like if you're just you know driving to spots and white walking a few hundred yards or whatever like i i say get the camera that you like the most and weight shouldn't really factor a whole lot into that um yeah but uh yeah you know originally when i was looking to do the switch i was actually looking really hard at getting the fuji system the the apsc um, like the xt2 system that they have and i think they came out with the xt3 since i was looking but uh um for i don't know for me it came down to pixels um you know 42 megapixels versus i think 24 on the fuji and then the crop sensor for me, like I, I do tend to print pretty large um, when I do print, and so I need it. I, I do like having as many pixels as I can, and then of course, gotcha. the Sony has great dynamic range. Um, I'd say the only two disadvantages of the Sony system that um, I would tell people about is um, they're not very good at weather sealing, um, and they can fail in bad weather. So, obvious workaround for that for me has been. Um, I take a, it's basically, you can get them for like five bucks on Amazon, but it's basically a camera and lens plastic sleeve that you put your body into and it covers it up and protects it from the rain and snow. That has worked really great. I mean, I shot with it in Iceland and lots of rain and never had any problems with it. Um, So that's an easy fix for that. And then the other one is battery life. Oh, you're going to say something? Well, before you go into battery life, because that's specifically something I was curious about. One, why did you choose the Sony over the Fuji and it came down to megapixels? And so good, I got that question out of the way. But then specifically, we make comments that we just don't feel like the Sony system is going to be as weatherproof as my Canon. And you've proven it. You've had instances where you've noticed it just failed on you. Um, I've never had my Sony fail on me, but that's because oh, okay. I baby the out of it. <laughs> 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 so you get the camera and lens sleeve from the beginning. You didn't even risk yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, well, I didn't do it from the beginning, but if if I knew I was, even before I got that, if I knew that I was going to be shooting in, in rain or anything like that, I would have some way of covering it up so that, I, so that like, I'd, I'd bring an umbrella with me, whatever. So I was just more gotcha. careful than I was with my Nikon. I didn't really have any issues with my Nikon. Um before I switched, I actually used the Sony a7R, the first generation, for a trip in Oregon. I shot like, I don't know, like 15 waterfalls with my friend Kane. And I oh, had. Oh, that's a good test. Yeah, and I had both systems with me. So I had the Nikon with me and I had the Sony. And I was shooting, um, I think it was Kusa Falls, and there was a ton of mist. And the a7R just shut off. Like it just turned off. It didn't, like, I didn't get it wet, but there was definitely spray. And I think it has to do with the hot shoe, like on the top. For some reason, if that hot shoe really any moisture on it, then the system will just shut down and malfunction. So a lot of people recommend if you have the Sony mirrorless system, if you can get like electrical tape or something and you can just cover that hot shoe, that pretty much solves that problem as well. But yeah, haven't had that problem since. And so you got to tape it off. And I recommend gaffer's tape. As you guys know, my love of gaffer's tape. That Just use some gaffer's tape on there and keep it from getting wet. And then it won't shut down. Interesting. I was curious how they fail. Like if they stop forever or if they just shut down and then need time. With um, the camera and lens sleeve specifically, is it built for your camera body? Or do you have to modify it? Is it something you need to 
cut, trim, tape, and fix on your camera, and it's something you'll never take off? No. Or is it easy to put on, take off, put on, and whatever? Yeah, you need? it's super simple so- solution. It's got like drawstrings at either end, and the there's a lens end, and there's a camera end, and you just fit it over lens first, and kind of slide it on like a sock. And it's super adjustable okay. and easy to move around, and it's pretty easy to get your hand up in there and still shoot with it. Um, and when you change a lens, do you have to take it off? Uh, let's see. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's worth it to keep your camera running. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now let's go into the battery life because this is a good question. I'm not a gear guy, but I just my Canon took a hit in Iceland. I had it on a tripod. I was next to these ducts of hot air coming out of a. What am I trying to say? One of those geyser sections that have the uh, natural hot springs oh, uh-huh. and geysers going crazy. And it was a really windy night. And I turned my back to look at where I was trying to see if I can see Aurora happening. And when I came back, before I came back, my camera and tripod took a complete tumble on the right. It landed on the L bracket, which was a great bracing for it. But right where the L bracket connects with my Canon 5D Mark IV, it's bubbled out. It's, it's, it's swollen up a bit. It's kind of... Uh, a lot of stress pulled on that in the impact and so then it's caused it to bloat up right there and then sometimes my time lapses turn off on me for no reason and I don't know if they're related so now I'm starting to think okay you might be getting another camera body here in the next year if this keeps acting like this do you want to switch and join you know the the dark side (laughs) <laughs> it's it's not a dark side as much as I just worry that it's a it's the easy first answer for everybody and it's like okay wait which one would you choose would you choose Fuji system would you go with Sony do you really want to switch systems at all and not just buy another camera body and so I'm trying not to jump with everybody else at the same time but uh, I want to hear all these specifics so the battery has it not gotten better with the batteries I thought that they were just fine and it was hard to really notice a difference yeah well before I answer that I mean I will say like. <laughs> When I was looking into this, I probably put way too much thought and energy into the process. And (laughs) like, you know, there's pros and cons to every camera system. And I'm not, I personally, like, I'm not a like gear evangelist or a brand evangelist. Like to me, like, I think there's really nowadays, there's really no bad camera. I think it's a matter of like finding one that fits for how you're going to use it and yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, you look at Canon. Canon has really fantastic lenses. Um, I think they probably have the best lenses out of any system. Um, and a good, good they have the best variety of lenses, you know, that can kind of meet different needs and things. Um, I think they also probably have the best color rendition out of any camera system. Um, but I, I have kind of small hands, and, like, the Canons are beefy, man, like, I feel <laughs> right. like I'm holding a television set or something like I, um, that, the old 1990s television sets with the vacuum tube in the back. Yeah. Or like the old, like <laughs> car cell phones that look like bricks. Like, <laughs> yeah, um, those gray ones. Yeah. So like I find the Canon systems, like they're a little big for me. So like, you know, there's some ergonomic things too. And I think most people find the Sony cameras are too small for them. So you know, it's like there's no right or wrong answer. It's kind of like comes down to what you want your camera to do and how it feels in your hand and like what you care about and what you don't care about and what the trade-offs you're willing to make are. In terms of battery, um, it, it's a huge problem with the A7R and the A7R2. They've made some significant improvements on the A7R3. Um, I don't oh, own good. the A7R3, so I can't tell you how much better it is. 
Um, but yeah. uh, a lot of people have asked me if I'm if I'm going to upgrade to the A7R3. Um, I'm not. I I I have a workaround for the A7R2 battery issue. I actually I actually only own four Sony cam uh, so four batteries, which is may may really? sound like a lot for a Canon or Nikon no. shooter, but for Sony shooter, like that's not that many batteries. Um, I have seven right now on my desk, and so there's only four in your bag at any time because of weight, I guess. Yeah, and um, I have a different, I have a better solution, and and I can only leverage it because of the Sony A7R system. Uh, and um, I, know, I think I know what you're going to say because I do love this feature about it as a time lapse. Yep, Go yep, ahead. and that what is and it? that's one of the reasons I got it too. I do a lot of star trails. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. Um, you can actually power the camera with an external battery while it's shooting and you can charge it with the external battery while you're not shooting. So I have a, like a 20,000 milliamp anchor, you know, external battery that, um, you know, let's be honest, if I'm doing a big backpacking trip, I'm going to bring that with me anyway, no matter what camera system I have, cause I'm going to probably charge my cell phone. I'm probably going to want to charge okay. other devices. So even if the weight is a big, significant amount of weight, you still take it. Huh? Yeah. And it's honestly not that heavy. I mean, I don't know. I don't oh. personally think it's that heavy, but I've never worried about running out of battery on my camera or my cell phone. And I use, we'll get to this in the story or in the, like what gear you wouldn't bring, would bring, but I use my cell phone a lot yeah. for GPS. So, um, so yeah, uh, so, I, so you need the power for it, and you already have it, and you can plug it in, guys. You can plug it directly in with a little USB cable to your Sony. That's just so fantastic. I, I love that about the Sony. It's really cool. Yeah, it's nice for traveling. Like, you you can just charge your, like, you know, I don't know. If you you ever shoot, like, when you're, you're, you're driving down the road and you have different locations, you're going to shoot, like, in fall colors or something. Like, you can just plug yeah. it in and charge it in between shoots and it's fully charged almost all the time. Yeah. You know, I haven't even imagined that. I mean, I do that with my cell phone and if I ever got a Sony, I guaranteed I'd be doing that. I'll have a cord constantly plugged in and I'll just be plugging in as I go. That's great. That's great. I mean, I, we're getting into the weeds of gear guys, but just <laughs> when you think about what all of us are going through, whether you're buying a new full frame camera, cause you've been using a crop sensor forever, or if you're thinking about getting into photography or you're thinking I need another body, Every one of us are considering a Sony potentially. And so this is, I think, very good information. And uh, thanks. If you guys want to find his actual spreadsheet that he's talking about, I found it on here. Choosing Sony full-frame camera equipment for backpacking and weight calculation tool. So I have a link right here, guys, that I'm putting in the description. If you don't see it in the description at Patreon because you didn't want to look there, in the future you can check. Once Kurt gets it up, it'll be at photogadventures.com forward slash EP113. You'll see it there in the show notes and you can go and check out Matt's resource there. So that's awesome, Matt. Before we go into the next segment, and we'll just break this up in two halves. This first half has been fantastic and fun, but we're already almost at 40 minutes. And so I've got to just go. And I want to hear specifically about your process with composition and photography. So if I could ask you the most vague question ever, what is your personal approach to your photography and composition in mind? Man, I wish I could tell you that I had a very specific uh, approach to this because it's actually something that I've put a lot of energy and effort into trying to improve over the last three or four years because I think, if anything, uh, that's the area that we can all constantly get better at over time. Um, 
And I guess for me, it's like first I try to focus on like what are the things that really interest me about a particular scene. Um, and then I try to find ways in the environment, in the landscape to accentuate those things that I visually find interesting. So that might be by using patterns or lines or directions to um, you know, point to those things, or it could be color, it could be shapes, um, but it's, it's trying to accentuate, it could be light, you know, it could be like finding yeah. a way to make it to where the light is really only um, accentuating the thing or things in the scene that I find the most visually interesting or that might tell the most interesting story. Um, and then I think that's the other thing um, is that I try, I've been trying more and more to find a way for the composition to help tell a story about that particular scene or object or subject, um, which sounds really cool and awesome. But man, when you get out there and you try to do that, it is incredibly difficult to do. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like the story is like 700 different essays that have been laid about and all the pages have been strewn together. So you're not sure where the story begins and ends. And there's so many different of yeah. them. How do you start interpreting? And you're like, oh, I know there's a story here. How do I tell it? You know? <laughs> Um, and sometimes it works yeah. and sometimes it doesn't. And um, hopefully I feel like over the last year or two, I've gotten a little bit better at that. And I actually, I actually credit that a lot to my podcast. Um, just listening to all these really, really thoughtful, intelligent and talented photographers talk about their process. Um, I, I feel like I've kind of gained some knowledge and insight based on what I've learned from listening to them. So that's definitely been a huge plug uh positive for doing the podcast absolutely i mean sometimes people think the podcast is so that we could get this information to you guys out there but a lot of times it's our avenue our vehicle to getting people we admire to actually talk to us <laughs> it's such a cool <laughs> right. self-serving project of having a podcast <laughs> yeah it's nice right <laughs> Exactly. So I'm going to define people in a very unfair way. I'm going to give two types of people as if there's only ever two types. But there's two types of photographers sometimes. The photographers who are elitist like me who go to a location and it's like, you know what? Light's not working. This isn't working. That's not working. I'm not going to probably get anything today. Then there's the photographers who go in a situation. It's like whatever it might be, they really try to find something. Do you find yourself fitting into both categories depending on your mood or do you find yourself aggressively being one or the other? That's a great question. And actually, um, I think I used to fall very heavily in the first camp where I was, um, I had high expectations and if the light wasn't just right, yeah. then I didn't even take a picture or, you know, like <laughs> I would get kind of pissed off and, you know, like um, <laughs> yeah. I was upset about the fact that I had spent all that time and didn't get anything out of it. Um, I, I really, right. really, really encourage people to set all that aside. Um, it can be incredibly rewarding to just slow down, go into a scene or an area without any expectations whatsoever. I mean, you might have a plan of like, oh, there's a specific shot or this composition or these subjects I want to shoot. But if you go into it with kind of um, like, there's no expectation that I'm going to be getting that shot or the shot that I'm here for, um, it really opens you up to mm -hmm. to finding things that you may not have always looked for or seen before. And I got to tell you, like having that mindset over the last year or two for me has really, um, I feel like I've come away with a lot better photos and I've gotten a lot more interesting photos that um, 
Oh, um, I feel like are more unique. Um, they're not just like icons or, you know, like scenes that everyone recognizes in good light. You know, it could be, it could be a, a single tree that's just got really interesting light or patterns or lines. And then, um, you know, like, I don't know, you just start to see the world differently. And then, yes. I don't know, you start appreciating exactly. it in a different way as well. And um, I think that starts to, to show in the work that you start producing. Yes. And, you know, it's like peace of mind almost helps creativity is what you're saying. You're coming in a situation with a little more openness and you'll see things. I think the best example of that recently in my personal experience, and it's not me, I got to give credit to Brendan and Tim, one of our friends and listeners. Tim and Brendan were out at the giant redwoods, this giant giant trees and that's what they're there for they're there for a moody sunrise maybe even some fog and capturing the grandeur of this and what they came out with actually they came out of there with some of their best and most interesting macro shots of fungi i've ever seen and (laughs) it's like they were playing with lights even and messing with the lights and putting a blue cast in the shadows of a bunch of little blue or little little white fungi and it's just we're talking on a tiny macro level and you look at the pictures on our instagram and it's like wow it's really really cool you wouldn't think that they went there with their plan of taking nice long panorama vertical panoramas of trees that are gigantic trees the width of a bus we're talking they were there and looking for that planning for it and came out with the absolute opposite of the location that they went to and how cool is that guys i gotta say what matt just said about focusing and getting in there and just he's had better and more interesting pictures come out of it the last year with that mindset is true and i think a lot of us have gone through the situation of you start photography and all of a sudden now you're a weather geek and you notice things and because of photography your head's up your head's looking around you and your surroundings and you're paying attention to things that you didn't before and then eventually you transition into your favorite things are the only things you want to see about the scene and then if it's not those conditions of your favorite conditions you get bummed or disappointed or think that you messed up in your planning or maybe you shouldn't be standing here you should be standing there and you spend the entire sunset trying to get the perfect shot and you end up with nothing instead of having just a nice awesome wonderful experience that gets something out of it and keeps your mind just open to the possibilities of what could be interesting and just don't hold yourself to such high expectations and get frustrated. You're not going to build the portfolio image every time you show up on location. If you look at Erin Bobnick, she doesn't release that many images every year because you only get her best. And so just have fun. Get out there as many times as you can. Have fun and share your best. Um, I would even go as far as to say for me... um... Uh, if I wouldn't have changed my mindset, I don't know that I'd still be shooting. Um, oh, interesting. I, wow. I had such a string of bad luck in 2013, 2014, 2015 of just terrible conditions, like just trip after trip after trip of like nothing worked. And the shots that I had all in my mind, none of them, none of them, I got none of them. And and then consequently, I didn't produce much good work over that period of time. Mm. And I was pretty bummed out about it all and contemplating like just selling all my stuff and giving up. And Wow, that's serious. And, you know, honestly, like changing that mindset for me has basically made landscape photography for me. It's been much more fun, more exciting. 
it's, you know, you don't have these high expectations and you come out with much better stuff anyways. It's, I can't recommend it enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really inspiring story to share your personal struggle there and how you've come out of it. Thank you, man. And that's great segue into more of his personal possible struggles, <laughs> personal successes, personal experiences as let's go ahead and take our only break of the podcast and we'll come back with Matt Payne. And if it takes another half an hour to hear all your stories, I'm up for it. I can't wait. Cool. Welcome back to the Photog Adventures podcast. I'm hanging out with the host of the F-Stop Collaborate and Listen podcast, Matt Payne. And we just heard about the reasons why all of you should throw away your Canon cameras and jump into the Sony world. Now, we talked openly about the positives and the negatives of both systems, and it's been a lot of fun. But Photog Adventures is about the adventure. So let's go ahead. The rest of the podcast, I want to hear your story, Matt. You said it already yourself. You kind of beat me into the segue of telling the campfire story. So if you're sitting there at a campfire and you're sharing your stories with other photographers, what are the stories that you go to first? Yeah, so let me first let me preface this by saying that everyone that knows me tells me that I suck at telling stories um, because I oh, really? take too much time. So, we just so end the to... podcast now. <laughs> so, so if I talk too much about it, just you can edit stuff out later because I tend to like go into too much detail and like it gets annoying. But like I don't know, I you're get... like I wonder if it was Wednesday. Was it Tuesday? Maybe it was Tuesday. It's like yeah, I'll cut you off on those. Right, right. <laughs> so, so the stories that came to come to my mind most readily are are stories of. Um, my mountain climbing adventures here in Colorado. So yeah. um, I've actually had, and most of these stories aren't really like, you know, inspirational stories. So, um, but I think they're interesting nonetheless. Um, oh, we have fun with it. No worries. Cool, Even cool. if it's your major failure, we'll love it. Oh, well, I have lots of those. So, so we're, we're good. <laughs> um, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the craziest story for me, um, because it just, it's seared into my mind. Um, I was climbing a 14er here in Colorado called Snowmass Mountain, which is in a mountain range called the Elk Mountains, which is kind of notoriously known for loose rock and being just really dangerous and nasty and lots of just crazy like dangerous spots um yikes if it's a 14 level on the yosemite decimal scale that must be incredibly hard no it, it's a class it's actually class three but um it's the oh. mountain is a uh, fourteen thousand feet or higher and that's a 14er okay that's what we call gotcha. 14er yeah 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 it's a Colorado thing um Anyway, so I wouldn't get it here in Utah. It's cool. You guys have like what, like Niners, Tenors? <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, knock it off. We have Twelvers, I think. There you go. I have to look it up. <laughs> Anyways, so, um, so, and one of the things I do, which is kind of, I don't know, like I like to challenge myself for dumb reasons, is I like to climb some of these mountains <laughs> on um, like not the standard route, um, typically because uh, there's less people and there's, I don't know, it's just more interesting because you can tell stories that other people can't <laughs> yeah, um, exactly right which is I exactly what happened here so <laughs> so my foreshadow <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so my um so my one of my my favorite climbing partners and my best friend um his name is silas um we were climbing uh snowmass and uh we were doing it from the backside called lead king basin and it's a backpack into this uh, lake called lake geneva and um and then you go up this really steep section but it's not super technical it's just really steep um got to the top no problem and that was awesome and then we looked to the north and there's a kind of a sub peak of snowmass that's not ranked but it still looks inviting called north snowmass mountain 
And we're like, well, let's just go over there. So like, okay, let's go over there. <laughs> let's just go over let's there. Let's go over there. Let's go do that one too. So it's we like did. 16 hours later. <laughs> <laughs> so no, like probably, I don't know, 30 minutes later, 40 minutes later, we got oh, over okay. there. No big deal. It's fine. Um, and then we're like, okay, let's go back. But we're like, you know, we're more tired and, uh, you know, we didn't want to go back the same way. It looked like there was maybe going to be some storms coming. So we're like, let's go down this way instead. Well, boom, there's the first mistake. Like never go back a different way, especially if you don't know what the route is like. Cause holy shit, we, um, started going down this way and there's no trails up here. It's all just like really like loose, big boulders and cliff faces and scree and nasty talus and dirt and yeah it's just gross i don't even know how to describe it um (laughs) so we're going along and you know there's a psychological thing that happens when you're out uh doing these uh adventures um you kind of just get lulled more and more and more into your mistake so the further you get the less likely you want to turn around because you're so committed um so we got gosh probably about 100 200 feet into this kind of traverse across the, the face of north uh snow mass and it was just getting really really dangerous like you know every oh, step the rocks were starting to tumble down the mountain underneath us like we were Yikes. having to like jump around like frogger to like <laughs> avoid rocks everywhere oh, really? oh they're coming after you they're gonna run you over situation yeah they're oh. coming from above they're falling below us and in Long story short, like we turned around and barely made it out of there. Huge mistake to go like an alternate route wow. and not know what was over there. Super lucky to not have anything bad happen to us. But <sighs> um, the psychological impact of something like that happening to you, for me, I, I wasn't as affected because I've done a lot of mountain climbing and been in some crazy situations. Okay. But my friend at the time, that was maybe only like his fourth or fifth situation in steep terrain like that and oh. it was really yeah he's he never was really coming shook. back scenario yeah like i'm never gonna climb a mountain with you again <laughs> <laughs> he's like what were you thinking yeah so in this situation you said you went back uh, you actually went and went to the top again and then went down the way you originally came correct up. yeah because oh that must have added some serious time uh, yeah i mean I probably the whole mistake probably cost us two hours but yeah which well, that's not as bad but two hours up there like weather can change in an instant so we just got really lucky all around like um it could have been a that's a great point it could have been a much more serious situation and the irony is for four or five years i was actually uh, writing a blog post every year documenting all the mountaineering deaths in colorado so it was like who would have written yours exactly (laughs) it wasn't gonna be me um so that was a that was a, a crazy situation um and then actually kind of on the flip side of that this past year, um, yeah, I was, uh, so I was doing my final mountain, the hundredth of the highest hundred, um, called Thunder Pyramid, which is, um, over in the same mountain range, the Elk Mountains. And it's, um, if, if you're familiar at all with that iconic shot of the Maroon Bells in the fall, um. I don't know if you've ever seen like the maroon bells with the reflection. I most likely have seen them a thousand times, but just don't realize yeah. that the maroon bells that the mountains called Thunder Pyramid. Yeah, so there, so the maroon bells. That's an awesome name. Uh, there's a valley um, that comes down to the east of the maroon bells, and that's the basically east maroon 
Creek. And um, on the other side of the valley from the Maroon Bells is Pyramid Peak, which is a 14er. And then there's Thunder Pyramid, which is next to it. And they're both in the top 100 um, in Colorado. So anyway, uh, my Damn. same friend, Silas, we were climbing. Um, he went out with you again. Oh, yeah, lots of times. <laughs> oh, good. You mentioned him as the friend at that time. It sounded like that's long been over. <laughs> no, no, no. We're, we're still really tight. So, yeah. Oh, good. He forgave you. <laughs> yes. Um, so we're, we're hiking up the trail, um, and it's, uh, it's like 4 in the morning. We're hiking up the trail. And this headlamp comes running down the trail from above, like in a huge rush. And <laughs> oh, wow. basically what happened, it was this, this young kid, this young teenager, I think he was like 16 or 17. Oh, really? He, he was by himself um, and he's, he, he was surprisingly calm for the gravity of the situation he was in. Um, he was um, up there backpacking with his dad who was like in his fifties or sixties oh, no. and they, they were from Florida at sea level Yikes. and they had not spent any time acclimating. And we were at like 11,000 feet Oh boy! at that point. Oh boy. And he was like, so do you guys have cell service? <laughs> we were like, no dude, like you have to drive all the way back down to Aspen, which is like, I don't know. It was probably like a 40 minute drive from where we were at. Oh boy. Not including like the two hour hike down to the trailhead. Oh, yikes. Um, so we were like, no, we, you don't have cell service up here. He's, we we're like, what's up? And he's like, well, my dad, um, is like really sick, Ooh. um, way like three or four miles up the trail. And, you know, we were asking him questions. It's his dad had like really, really, really bad altitude sickness. Wow. You know, he was like vomiting and like, he just terrible condition. Yikes. Couldn't move. And we were like, okay, well, you need to go back up to him and be with him and help him down. He has to get down as fast as he can get down. Mm. So he was like, really? Like, why? why? And we're like, oh, my God, you're so unprepared <laughs> to be up here. What are you doing? Coming from Florida and doing that, that's nuts. So we basically had to talk this kid through, like, you know, why you should acclimate and like, you should drink water. And do you have, do you have food? Like we give them some of our food and like, <sighs> um, yeah, it was, it was, it was insane. So like he went all the way back up, helped his dad down. My friend and I climbed our mountain and came all the way back down to the trail, like several hours later. Um, and, and, and then we ran into him and his dad who were just then just coming down with the help of a part with a, a national forest ranger. Oh, a forest um, ranger. And then, him. yeah. And then, um, they had to, uh, flight for life him out. So they had a helicopter really? fly in right next to our campsite, um, <laughs> at the, at crater Lake. It's a, not the famous crater Lake, but it, there's a lake up there called crater Lake. Oh, it's just also called crater Lake. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, they f flight for life Tim out of there. And then like an hour later, another helicopter came and got his son. It was, it was crazy. Oh, the son couldn't fit in the first helicopter and they had to pay for two helicopter flights. Right. Oh, so insurance. So it gets better. That. So it gets better. Oh, so then literally the next day, my friend and I, um, my friend climbs North Maroon Peak, which is a 14,000-foot mountain in that valley. It's one of the Maroon Bells. Um, I'd already done it before, so I was like, oh, I'll just stay down here. He climbs it, comes back down. Everything's fine. Um, I saw the weather conditions changing, and I thought, man, there's going to be, like, fresh snow on the tops of Thunder Pyramid and Pyramid. 
there's going to be really great. I just had this vision of this great photo um, <laughs> yeah. of like, but I knew the only way I could get it was to like basically climb all the way up halfway up North Maroon Peak to get the shot. So I convinced my friend to go all the way back halfway up North Maroon Peak with me uh, be- uh, before sunset in like m- raining conditions, really cold, <laughs> nasty wind. Silas, are you sure you still want to be his friend? Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> Silas, is cr- Silas is amazing. <laughs> so then we get up there and there was in this like six o'clock at night and there's no other people up there and we're probably at 12,800 feet and this guy comes limping down the mountain um, by himself and he had basically broken his ankle climbing North Maroon Peak. Didn't have any water, didn't have any first aid kit. He was wearing like, didn't have warm clothes. Like he was going to basically spend the night up there if he didn't get help. Spend the rest of his life up there. Long story short, we like fixed him up, provided him first aid, provided him food and water. Um, and then like helped him like get down the mountain, Wow! which like, so basically twice in one, in two days, we helped <laughs> like rescue people off of the mountain. It was insane. Uh, did he get a helicopter too? You know, it was kind of weird. Um, so we actually ended up staying up there a little bit longer and then we, we thought we'd run into him on our way down and we never saw him again. Oh, so the bears got him. Yeah, we don't know exactly what happened to him, but I assume um, he's okay. Yeah, it was just a crazy weekend. Like, did you get your shot? Did you get that snow cake? I did. Okay, awesome. I did. It was like it, it, it unfolded exactly as I <laughs> as I predicted it would, and it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, that comes with experience and knowing the area. The fact that you even saw the weather coming—that's brilliant. Is it one of your portfolio pieces or just a great memory? Um, it's um, I don't think it's on my current website, but I'm redoing my website right now, so I haven't added new work up there in a while. Um, so it'll be on my new website. Oh, um, cool. and I think it's on. I think I've put it up on Flickr and 500px and Instagram. So. So then you've rescued two people. When you say you applied first aid to a guy with a broken ankle, what did you do? You know, just so it was actually Silas um, that did it, um, but. Basically, his his ankle was just super crazy swollen. Oof. So we gave him ibuprofen. He didn't have any ibuprofen. Yes. Um, we um, we uh, let's see. I'm trying to think. Uh, I think we had some way of compressing his ankle so that um, you know it 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 Got was not as painful for him and had some support. Yeah. Um, and I think. I think that was about all we had to do for him. He didn't. He also didn't have any water, so we gave him water. Does the guy um, just get stuck too long, so we ran out of all that stuff, or did he really come? I that think so because he, because my friend said he ran into him. Um, he was climbing up as he was climbing down, and that was like six hours earlier. Oh, jeez. So yeah, he had been up there quite a long time, struggling, and he was moving across this boulder field, like. Literally, it took him um, five minutes to go about five feet. I mean, he was moving that slow. (laughs) It was amazing. Yeah. Anyone who does anything like that alone without being far more informed, they just deserve the Darwin Award, and they should just be donated to the hills and their body given to the land. Oh, my God. (laughs) It It was fascinating. 
Um, and it, but you'd be surprised how many people I run into. Oh, I, I mean, bet. or maybe you wouldn't be surprised, but <laughs> it's a pretty common occurrence to run into people. I'm just saddened. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I mean, so last year on Capitol Peak, which is probably the most dangerous 14,000 foot mountain in Colorado, um, I think five people died on it, and Whew. yeah, they all made almost all the same mistakes. It was fascinating. Like even with it being in the news and everything, people still made the same mistakes as the people before them that. Like there was huge news stories about it, and then still it was, they do it's it. bizarre. So when you're thinking about mistakes and being a mountaineer, if someone who's listening to this podcast right now is thinking, you know, I'm inspired to do more of that type of photography and do more hiking. I want to get acclimated. I want to get in, you know, good shape to do so and do this. What is some of the piece of advice that you'd give someone who wants to start this type of photography? What are maybe two things that you'd guarantee you'd tell them? to get them be prepared? Yeah, so I would say um, start out small. So, you know, don't try to bite off something that's super extreme. Like maybe mm. figure out like what some of the easier hikes are first um, and do don't those. Don't go from and, Florida sea level to like a 12,000, 14,000 high peak? Yeah, definitely acclimate. Um, <laughs> take a couple of days and get get, get acclimated to the elevation for sure. Um, and... I don't know. There's a lot of resources out there. If you just Google like mountaineering safety or, you know, safely climbing Colorado mountains, like there's a lot of resources available. Um, there's also a really good book um, that I recommend um, for people. It's called Freedom of the Hills. Um, and like it's chock full Is of... Is it a love story? <laughs> I know it sounds... Freedom of the Hills. It doesn't sound like it, but it's a very technical mountaineering manual all about like... <laughs> ropes and like self-arresting with a ice axe and but like it also has more practical like everyday stuff as well you know about like what to wear it's and not... stuff like that so do you remember who the author is or i guess freedom of the hills will be a good google search i'll find a link for you guys and i'll include it in here that's an awesome rep recommendation Matt. yeah i've got it on my bookshelf across from me i just can't see that far <laughs> Does it have a picture of Fabio, you know, right. embracing a voluptuous woman on the front? Right. No, it's actually, um, it's actually got a picture of um, that one guy that likes to play the saxophone. Yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> that song. Exactly. <laughs> so, on the same vein of what people need, um, you'd say if you're going to do mountaineering, any lenses? You mentioned the Holy Trinity. Is that what you recommend? The Trinity. <laughs> No, I would not because it's so heavy. <laughs> so then what would you do? So I, I'm a big fan of primes, although, um, you know, those can be uh, pretty limiting, which has its own benefits in some ways as well. But um, gosh, you know, I I got a lot of mileage out of using a 24 to 70 um, for a long time. I think if I were to bring a single lens with me um, nowadays, it'd probably be something like a like a 24 to 105 or something like that, um, just because it's got a nice range. And then once you kind of get a feel for the shots you wish that, oh, maybe I had wish I had something a little bit wider or a bit longer, you can kind of, you know, maybe look at a lightweight telephoto. Like I use the 70 to 300, which is pretty compact and lightweight for a, a decent telephoto lens. And then I also have like a pretty lightweight ultra wide. I have the Leo Leowa uh, 15 F2, which is really good for night photography. Um, and it's a lot smaller and lighter than like a 
14 to 24 solution. Um, mm, nice. But in terms of uh, other gear that, uh, well, I guess you're going to ask what I wouldn't leave the house yeah, with. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You asked it. What would you not? So for me, it's um, my cell phone with uh, an app called Gaia GPS. Um, with I've used it. And I, and I actually have the uh, premium membership, so you can download all of the premium maps um, and you can use it offline. So you don't even have to have cell service or have your, you can have your phone on airplane mode and it'll still work as a GPS unit. And guys, um, the rep- recommendation of the airplane mode is to save your battery. It lasts correct. longer. Yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, it's great. Like I track all of my tracks on there. Um, you know, it's great for also pre-planning trips. So you can mark waypoints. Um, I can't recommend it enough. I actually, in all of my, I actually have a whole other website where I do my mountaineering trip reports called 100summits.com. And all of my trip reports in there, I have links to Gaia GPS. Um, they're actually affiliate links. So help me out. But uh, <laughs> I can't it. recommend it enough. It's like easily one of the best applications you can have as a photographer who does any amount of hiking. Oh, fantastic. And you're saying you download them, so you have the maps, and then I'm supposing that it still tracks you as you're going, right? So you can yeah. see the trail that you came up, and you can repeat that trail on the way back. Yeah, that's another really great feature, especially if you do a lot of hiking in the dark, which I do, especially, you know, you know, a lot of my photos are photos I've taken at sunrise or sunset from the top of a very high mountain. <laughs> um <laughs> which means uh, I'm spending a significant amount of time navigating in the dark. So whenever I'm doing hikes like that, I'm creating a track in Gaia GPS, recording my track, and then, as you said, then I can follow that same track down and not necessarily worry about getting lost. Yes, I've used it myself. It's fantastic, especially in the dark when you're coming back from someplace like Goblin Valley where you get turned around and you're not entirely certain where the exit is that you came in from. So yeah, awesome. Great recommendations. Matt, I love and I'm scared of the idea of mountaineering photography. I just (laughs) thought in my head, he's part of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. So that's part of the name, Collaborate. Maybe he'll want to take Brendan and I and we'll go out somewhere in Colorado. Then I realized, wait, I am nowhere in shape to do any of these. And so, like, can we do, like, a eighter? Is that what you call them when they're only eight? They still have a cool 14er, 12er kind of name if they're only 8,000 yeah, feet they, in, the, yeah. in the air? Yeah, we call them eighters. Yeah. Eighters, okay. <laughs> I would love to get to know Colorado more. As I'm looking through your portfolio and just the 100summits.com website and seeing all these options, I'm thinking, man, I've got to get to know Colorado more. For some place that's right next door to me, I can't believe I know so little about it. So if we're ever in your area, would you like to hang out with us? It'd be a blast to meet up with you. Yeah, sounds good, man. There's lots of, um, you know, the interesting thing about Colorado is there's a lot of mining history here. So there's actually a lot of roads that can get you to some pretty, pretty great spots. And, um, so even, even with the four wheel drive vehicle, you can get to some pretty cool spots. That's good news. Especially if I'm not fully, fully committed to my goal of losing any weight and getting more in shape. And so if I 
stick through with my current sit-up, my, my current sit-up, that's kind of a nice switch of words, is if I do any sit-ups, if I do a sit-up, maybe I'll be able to do some of the hikes. Otherwise, those trails driving to cool places will be right up my alley. That'd there be awesome. Yeah. So Matt, before we hang up on the podcast, we've mentioned a lot of the locations where people can find you, but give us a quick list of where everyone can follow Matt Payne and follow F-Stop Collaborate and listen. Yeah, so if you want to follow my photography, um, the best way to do it is um, either Instagram, Facebook, or my website. So just search Matt Payne Photo um, or mattpainephotography.com. And then um, uh, let's see. And then for the podcast, the podcast uh, also has an Instagram page. It's uh, F-Stop and Listen. And then um, we also have a really uh, lively Facebook group that um, is open for anyone. Um, and it's just, if you just search for uh, F-Stop, collaborate and listen in the groups, you'll find it. And um, it's a lot of fun. We, uh, we I actually ask all the group members for questions of upcoming guests. So you get to be a collaborator in that aspect to um, <laughs> kind of, you know, if there's something you really want to know about an upcoming guest, you can ask that question. And I'd say about 80 to 90% of the time I get those questions in. So it's a, it's a great way to engage with the podcast. That's fun. You can follow the podcast and you can inform the podcast of what directions to go and questions to ask with the guests. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking time with me today, Matt, especially this close to Christmas. You're awesome for making time for me. I appreciate it. Hey, man, no problem. I'm actually going to Kauai on Christmas Day, so I'm excited for that. <laughs> oh, I hate you. I really, really do. I mean, I've never been there, but I know I would love it. And just the fact that you're out. Oh, it'd be so cool. Okay. I've got to say too, you mentioned that Utah's mountains, maybe we get up there. Oh my gosh. We actually barely do. As I look in a Google search of tallest peaks in Colorado and then tallest peaks in Utah, Google gives me about 10 images of peaks, the tallest peaks. Utah's tallest is King's Peak, 13.5, and goes right away to 12, and the rest of them are all 12, and then the last four in this list are 11.9, 11.9, Mount Tipanogos is 11.7, and 11.5. I look at the exact same group of images here for Colorado, and every single one of them are higher than 14.2, with Mount Elbert as the highest at 14.4, and then all of those right around the same height. Oh, man, there's some serious elevation in Colorado, and it completely trumps, and I shouldn't use that word anymore, it completely beats out Utah for height. What an amazing land, and I barely know it. So if you're going to be a mountaineer. Yeah, there's a... There's um, over 600 mountains over 13,000 feet in Colorado. Over 600, over 13,000 feet, and we have one? Wow. (laughs) It's like that border was drawn right there and included King's Peak somehow. It's got to be over there on the border of Colorado somewhere if we have that. Well, you know, height height's not everything. Um, As a guy who's five foot four, it is everything. (laughs) You're like... uh I appreciate that. <laughs> As a guy who has like, I have a, I have a decent voice and then I meet someone in person and they're like, oh, I thought you'd be taller. And I'm like, shut up. Shut up. <laughs> so mean. <laughs> so actually, if you really want to geek out on mountains in actually all of the states in Colorado, there's a site called listsofjohn.com. Lists um, of John? By a guy named John Kirk who lives in Denver. And... Um, you can actually sign up on his website 
and track all of your climbs. Um, and he has all of the highest mountains, like basically every mountain from elevation zero to anything above for every state in the country, including Alaska. And um, most of them have pictures. It's pretty insane. It's That's an older kind of layout, but it's, Oh, it's like if you old. ever like really want to nerd out on mountains, like that's the site. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. I'll include that in the show notes. Thanks again for joining me. Ah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Really glad to have you, man. A really, really fun time. Cool. Thanks again to you patrons that are supporting the podcast. We really appreciate you guys. We hope you have a wonderful holiday season. We'll be back again with these episodes after January 7th, or at least the January 7th episode will be the first one of the year. And Matt, thanks so much. And we'll see you guys in a couple weeks. Other than the free podcast that comes out on Wednesday, we'll see you in a couple days.